Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. There we are. Hello. Um, you can all hear me, so it's nice to hear you and know that you're there. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining with us as we continue in this series through Nehemiah. As we've said, this is our, our third session in this wonderful book, and so we get to our third chapter in this great portion of God's Word. And it has been a, a really encouraging two weeks so far in this in this great book. I hope you have known that and felt that as God has been moving in your heart and your life as he's been speaking to us through his Word uh, very powerfully indeed. And so I believe... God has something significant once again to say to us. Uh, in, in some ways, in fact, in every way, we should come with that expectation every time we open God's word that he will speak uh, to us. And so you, you'll hopefully be aware that, uh, that this series is called Rebuild and Restore. As Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah tells the account of the Jewish people returning to Jerusalem uh, after the Babylonian exile, uh, and they start to rebuild and indeed complete the rebuilding of the city walls. Um, however, as we've seen in the previous two weeks, this this Uh, book of God's word is so much more than just a historical account of a construction project. Uh, We've recognized that that the walls and the physical infrastructure, yes, they are important and significant, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Actually, rebuilding them in the timescale that they did is incredibly impressive. There's much that we could learn about this as a historical record, but there is so much more to it than just history. See, these, these physical structures of the walls They are themselves symbolic of so much more. Uh, It's as if the walls are being held up for the Jewish people of the time as a mirror of their own state of their relationship with their God. And so as we've said in previous weeks, the walls lie in ruins. Well, the people's relationship with God lay in ruins because of their actions and their unfaithfulness. And so in previous generations, when the Jews had said, if you do not remain faithful to me, and indeed if you don't turn from your unfaithfulness, you will be taken into exile. And of course that happened because the people failed to turn back to God. While they were in exile though, and even before that, he gave the promise to say, if you turn back to me in repentance and and renew your faithfulness to me, then I will bring you back to this place, which is significant for my name. And that's the portion of history that we're stepping into. And that's why the rebuilding of these walls are about more than just walls, as we said in the tagline of our series, that this story is actually about God's people returning to the physical center of God's place, yes, at that time, for his purpose. And as we read these wonderful God-inspired eternal words for us, the the same truth applies. This This is an account for us of God showing us what it means to live as his people in the place where he puts us for his purpose. And so he has much to say to us uh, this morning again. And as we said, we, we turn to chapter 3, uh, and the, the physical rebuilding is described for us um, in some ways. And I know that some of you have read through that chapter already. Thank you for the messages of encouragement this week to say, uh, Drew, I've read through chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Um, all the best. <laughs> uh, but that, that's understand that attitude and we'll get there and if you haven't read it you'll see in a minute but but i think the thing is when we when we come to passages like this in scripture which are either full of historical detail or maybe even lists of people and places that feel very unfamiliar to us uh, our attitude can sometimes be the same that okay well we'll skip over that bit and we'll we'll probably not miss a whole lot about the story or about what god has to say and i completely understand that attitude although if we truly believe that this is God's inspired word, then, then there's something here for us. God has retained this passage of scripture for his glory and our benefit. 
And, and sometimes I, could, I completely get it. We read certain portions of scripture and it feels like there's a much easier link with our lives. We can, we can, if I can use the term and very much in inverted commas, they seem more relevant and applicable to us in that direct setting. But all scripture is God breathed. And I think it would be helpful for us to look at that verse in Second Timothy and keep that in our in front and center in our minds. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, those of us who follow Jesus, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, and so I, I wholeheartedly believe that, that God has something to say to us this morning because this is his word. Not because I think I have something clever to say about his word. No, this is his word. And so let's let his spirit speak to us through his word. He will teach, rebuke, correct, train in righteousness because we're engaging with his inspired, God-breathed word. Um, and so if you're not familiar, this chapter does then just walk us through how the wall was built and who um, and so to help us with that, and, and as you know from a couple of weeks ago, I am a visual learner. I find the, the, the map in the ESV, the illustrated map in the ESV study Bible, very helpful. And just in terms of, okay, the, the, rather than just being words on a page, I, I, I valued the, the illustration of this. It's not saying that this is an exact historical representation, but from archaeological digs and from what we can read through God's word, uh, this is the assumed look of how the walls, uh, when they were rebuilt by Nehemiah, would have looked. And you can see Jerusalem sits on top of a hill. Uh, right at the very right top temple that sat on the temple mound, another raised section within the city. And so the temple is at the top. Remember, if you're from your history lesson a couple of weeks ago, uh, Zerubbabel had already returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt that temple to some extent. And now Nehemiah comes back to rebuild these walls. Um, and so we're going to read through the whole of chapter three. Um, and as we read through, uh, again, just as I was looking at this this week, I find it helpful to sketch this out. Um, now, I'm not going to do that now because that would be uh, terrifying. Um, but th- this was what my scribble looked like on a piece of page. And what I did was went through. And as I went through, if anything else, this was helpful for me to engage in what I was reading. That it wasn't just this place built by this people. Next to them was this. Next to them was this. Actually, how did that all work together? And when we map it out like this, we see the number of people involved. We see the scale of the work that's involved, and we see how it works right from beginning of the temple, the rebuild, the way around it comes back and finishes at the temple. And so I'll just flick that through with a little zoom in on each section so that you can see who's building where and what. But please do open God's word if you have that with you and, and follow along there rather than on my scribbles, definitely. Um, so let's read um, Nehemiah 3 together. And if there are any um, Jewish scholars in the room, apologies in advance for some of my pronunciation. But let's read uh, Nehemiah 3. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. So the sheep gate is right at the beginning. Oh, Sorry, Joel, would you mind? Oh, no, there we are. It's okay. So the sheep gate is right up beside the temple. Uh, Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zucker, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. They, rebuilt, uh, they laid its beams and its, put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hekos, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the sons of Meshes, uh, no, let's do that again. Meshezebel made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bena, 
also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulder to the work under their supervision. Um, sorry, under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate, or the old gate, was repaired by Joadiah, son of Pesiah, and Meshulam, son of Besodeiah. Uh, yeah. They laid its beams and put its doors with, their, with its, their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Merimoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uzael, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored the Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jadeth, Benaiah made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of uh, Pathob Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zanua. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dung Gate, uh, oh, sorry, I went too far. Doesn't matter. The Dung Gate was repaired by Melchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The Fountain Gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over, and put in its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the, the wall of the Pool of Siloam by the King's Garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Ezbok, so that's a different Nehemiah than the one that we're reading of, ruler of the half-district of Bethsur, made repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kila, uh, carried out repairs of his, for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Jews, or fellow Levites, sorry, under Benui, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half district of Kaila. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle of the, to, to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house. And next to him, Azariah, son of Meshiah, and son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Benui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle in the corner. And Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs up to the point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the projecting tower of, to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house, Next to them, Zadok, son of Emmer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemai, son of Shekelai, uh, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hanani, son of Shelemiah, 
And Hanun, the sixth son of Zelph, made uh, repaired. His living quarters. Next to him, Malkaija, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. <laughs> Thank you for reading through that with me. I think it is important um, that, that we read this. If we believe that this is God's inspired word, then let's read every word of it. So what is God saying to us through the passage inspired by his word? Is the mic okay, Andy? Do you want me to change? It's okay. Um, so let's, let's see what we're, what we're uh, encountering here through God's word. Well, clearly what we're reading in chapter 3 of Nehemiah is a building site. But this is no ordinary building site as we've seen. There's spiritual significance to this physical place. This city of Jerusalem was known as the city of David. It is the place where God's earthly king would reign over his people. The city, as we saw already, has, uh, houses the temple, the, the physical representation of God's presence with his people. And not only that, the temple, of course, is where the people came to bring their sacrifices, to maintain the covenant with their God, to make atonement for their sin. And so I don't think it's any, any um, accident that that is where the first place where the building starts or certainly where the report starts, where the priests, Eliashib and the priests, they repair the sheep gate. That was the gate closest to the temple where the people brought their sacrifices. And so this city is, was much more than bricks and mortar, and it still is today. There, there's a spiritual significance to this place, which may be difficult for, for some of us to comprehend, but it was very real and tangible for the Jewish people who were living in the hope of the return to glory for this city, because the return of glory of this city was a mirror of the glory of their God. And so, yes, in chapter 3, we see a building site, but for Nehemiah and the people with him, this was God's building site remember some of what we saw last week nehemiah countered opposition at the end of chapter two and how does he how does he come against that opposition in verse 20 he says the god of heaven will give us success that's because nehemiah knows that this is god's job that he's been called to back in verse 12 he said when he had arrived in jerusalem i hadn't yet told what god had put on my heart to do for jerusalem this was god's mission that he had called nehemiah to And so this was more than just a random construction site in the Middle East. This was God's building site for these people. And we saw how how God had sovereignly orchestrated the the whole scenario to enable Nehemiah to return and to begin this building work. See, God is the one who's ultimately in control. He's the one who's ultimately leading this mission. And so, yes, Nehemiah and many others, as we've already read, are involved in the day to day grind of the the bricks and mortar work. But God is the chief architect here. He is the the project manager, if I can use that language. God is in control. He is the one leading. And so that leads us on to think about what I think one of the main main points of this passage is. And that's that through this long list of names and details, we see a lot about the nature of how God works and how God works to build his kingdom and how God works to build his kingdom through his people. So how God works to build his kingdom through and with his people. That's what I think one of the things we see from this wonderful chapter is. So what can we learn here about how God builds his kingdom and with his people? Well, the first thing I'll mention to you, and we'll spend more time on the second one. The first thing is that individuals matter to God. When we look through this list of names, indeed, I would say any list of names or places in scripture. Let's remember what we've mentioned before. That these are in scripture. 
God has, has, pre- has preserved these names and these details for us. But he's also showing the individuals who are involved here that God cares deeply about each of them. He knows them by name and has included them in his word. And so we should never lose sight of the fact that, that God has the ability to sovereignly control the entirety of the universe. Yes, absolutely, and we enjoyed that last week. Yet he also, at one and the same time, deeply cares for each individual. And so that means you. That means me. God knows us by name. And he loves us. And as we've already seen so helpfully through how Tim has led us, he loves us enough to have sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for each of us. Each individual matters to God. And so much so that he's included the names of over 40 individuals in this chapter, not to mention those who are grouped together with others. And so surely that should help us recognize that these names, although they may mean very little to us, although we don't hear of many of them, if any of them again through scripture, yet each of them matter to God deeply. And that's a a comforting truth for us. That, that That as God looks on us, he sees us. He knows us. He, he controls the, the vastness of the universe, yet he cares for each of us. He knows the, the, the hairs on our head. And you see, that helps us too, because when we think of God building and continuing to build his kingdom through his people, he uses us. So, so in Nehemiah 3, we have, we have these people gathering up. The, the stones and the, and the gates that have been burnt were still lying there. They're likely reusing the, most of that material. And they're using the physical stones to rebuild this wonderful place for God's kingdom. But what do we see in the New Testament? God continues to build and he continues to build spiritual buildings and he uses living stones to do it. He uses us. We see this in 1 Peter 2. Let me read 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Christ, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is still in the building industry. He will continue, as we'll see in a second. He has promised to build his church. And he will do it because he's promised to do it. And to do that, to build his kingdom, he uses us as his people. And he knows each of us by name. We are not just some bland mirage of bricks on a wall he knows each of us by name and he has placed us exactly where he would have us to be and so individuals matter to god and the second thing and as i said we'll spend a little bit more time here but not too much the second thing that we see in this long list of names and places in nehemiah is that we all have a part to play when it comes to how god builds his he uses many different people for many different roles, yet he uses them all for his glory. And when we work slowly through, which I've done this week, slowly through this passage, we start to notice that given to it that should cause us the question, why have they said that? Why has that been included in God's word? Why are we given that little bit of extra detail? Why does it matter that goldsmiths and perfumers are involved in this? What are some of the details here and why do they matter? Well, if I can run through just some of the details that we see, and then I'll try to summarize it at the end. As we work our way through, we see that the building project has been undertaken by God under the, and then with, by, by the physical hand of Jerusalem and those from outside. So a couple of times we hear of the men of Tekoa who are there. We see people who are rulers of districts outside of Jerusalem. We see priests from the surrounding area coming to help. All sorts of people are involved in this, as well as those who live in the city. 
We see some people then who are involved in an area of the wall which will carry great significance for them. I've already mentioned the priests who rebuild the section around the temple. That will have been incredibly significant for them. There are people who build adjoining their house or next to their house. I mean, you're going to want the bit of the wall beside your house to be decent. So you're going to build that well. Yet we also see that there are lots of people who just build sections of the walls because they needed to be built. There doesn't seem to be. We're not told of any personal connection there. So people are building bits of that are significant, bits that aren't. Bits that are important to them, bits that aren't. We see religious leaders mentioned. We see political leaders mentioned. We see ordinary folk, lay folk mentioned in all of this rebuilding. And what I find interesting, in verse 5, we're told that the, the nobles from Tekoa don't put their shoulders to the work. They, they clearly think that this, this is beneath them. But yet we see rulers of other districts coming and doing what is necessary. We see, fourthly, some of these are, are clearly working well outside their normal experience. As I've mentioned, the goldsmiths, the perfume makers, there's guards at the gate, priests who are building walls. These aren't necessarily a natural part of their skill set. I mean, if you're a delicate person working with intricacies with gold and with perfume, you're then asked to rebuild a wall. That might feel like it's very far removed from your normal day-to-day. Yet they do it, and they serve well and diligently. We're told that, that Shalom in verse 12, he, he repairs a section with the help of his daughters, This is a family affair all coming together. Some, we're told, contribute what seems to be quite a small section of the overall work. You know, like we said, that area maybe right next to their house. Or there seem to be lots of names for a relatively short part of the wall. Yet there are other people, like the men from Zenoa, who come and rebuild a thousand cubits of the wall. That's about 450 meters. But but the end result doesn't really matter. Whether people have contributed a lot of that's the mission that God. In verse 20, we're told of Baruch, who zealously repaired another section. I think he's the only one that I could pick out who's given that extra encouragement or that extra little adjective. I don't know why he, he's maybe, I mean, maybe you work with someone like that who's just always keen for everything. Uh, maybe that's Baruch. But I think it is fascinating that this wasn't just a job to be done, but there was a passion behind what they were doing. And so there's so much diversity when you dive into this chapter. Uh, let me summarize it with these five bullets. So we have those living in Jerusalem and working alongside those who don't. We have religious and political leaders working alongside lay people. We have those with a vested interest and those who just simply seem to simply serve because there's a need and they have ability to meet that need. And there are those who can give a lot, those who can give a little, those who are working within their skills and those who are doing what is needed regardless of how foreign that may feel to them. See, this rebuilding project involves anyone and everyone who was willing to answer that call to come and take part in God's work. This is a community where you have people from all kinds of social standing, of political background, of gifting and ability, of professional career, coming together and united in a God-ordained mission. And I think that should sound familiar to us because the New Testament teaching on the church sounds an awful lot like that. You have a community of people with all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of social standing and gifting and ability and economic experience, but they come together for the mission of God. And they are united by Him. He is what gels that group, the church, together. And so when we see Nehemiah 3 in that way, it begins to sound a lot like the language of the body from 1 Corinthians. Thanks, Andy. It begins to sound a lot like that, that language of some of the pictures, the word pictures that are used in the New Testament to describe the church. When we see this very diverse group of people coming together and engaging and helping one another as they 
they serve God in the mission that he has given them. And that sounds a lot like some of what we see in speaking, spoken of in terms of the church. And this, this body, the church, we see through the New Testament as well that it is diverse as well. Just like the, the groups who rebuilt the wall is diverse, so the church is diverse, not just in the people who make it up, but in the way that each part of the body serves. If I can read a couple of passages from 1 Corinthians 12, just to demonstrate this, where we see the unity in the body, but also the diversity within it. So just as a body, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And then skipping down to verse 24, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you has a, is a part of it. And so as we can see from 1 Corinthians 12, and this body language, there's an interconnectedness to the way the body is put together, and that's reminiscent of Nehemiah 3. We see that the body is put together, and each part plays its, plays its part. We'll see this again from Ephesians 4 in a second. But each part does its bit. And in Nehemiah 3, each part, each person does their bit. So about 26 times through Nehemiah 3, we see the term next to him or next to them or build the next section. See, there's no part of the wall that is neglected or not taken care of. And that points us to the reality that God has put his people in the place that they needed to be to fulfill his mission in its totality. And surely the teaching of the New Testament of the church is the same. That the body is joined together in 1 Corinthians 12. The, the spiritual house is being built in 1 Peter 2. There's a family of believers adopted together in Romans 8. There's such a deep interconnectedness with the church, the family of God, his body. And, we've, and that's mirrored in what we see in Nehemiah 3. But as we also see in Nehemiah 3, being united in purpose, being part of the same group, being part of the same body, if I can put it like that, does not mean uniformity to one another. So, so there's diversity in the people who are building the walls, and there's such diversity in the church. And one of the things I mentioned is the reality that people come to build the walls with different set of skills and abilities and talents, but they serve where there's need. And I wonder if that is true for us as the church too, that there are needs and opportunities to serve and sometimes they will very neatly line up with our day-to-day -day experience. Sometimes, and, and we are blessed with it here, where our, our children's ministry is led by people who know and understand education with children. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a teacher to serve in our breakout team, but it helps. It's not essential, but it helps. It's the same with the music team. Isn't it good that Tim and Elaine can actually play instruments? It might be a bit tricky for the rest of us to follow along if it was just random keys and notes being hit. <laughs> And so there's a time when the service opportunity that is open neatly fits with what God has given you to do. But, but there are many other times when God calls us to do things that fall way outside our comfort zone. And the story of Nehemiah 3 and what we see from the body in 1 Corinthians 12 is that sometimes that is God leading us into a place to serve him that might feel different and foreign to us, but can serve him 
And it is about serving him, not about us being comfortable with that. You see, we all have a part to play. And so what is your part to play? When it comes to the body of Christ, as it's described in 1 Corinthians 12, there's no part that just gets carried along for the ride. I'm not saying that to be critical of anyone, but for all of us to encourage, to look at ourselves, to think, well, where could we serve? How can we serve? Not only inside this body as we meet regularly here. So, yes, you might want to join the AV team. You might want to be part of the baby and toddler team. You might want to um, help with something uh, a couple of hours a week and help clean this place. There's loads of things that we can physically do and practically do here. That would be wonderful. But how is God calling you to serve his mission where he's placed you? What is the part that he's calling you to do? Maybe you don't feel like you've got the gift of evangelism. Let me assure you that if God has worked in your life to call you to himself, if you're living your life following after Jesus, you've got a story to tell that your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers need to hear. So share your story of Jesus working in your life through his word. It It might not feel like much, But goodness, if you're walking in the place that God has called you to, serving in the way that he has asked you to, then it will be used by him for his glory. But as we think about the body, why do we serve? Why does this matter? Why do we all need to play our part? Well, as I said, if I can look to Ephesians 4, I'll try to bring it up here, even though it seems to be a problem, so that's all I'll ignore. Ephesians 4, and just want to read uh, three or four verses from Ephesians 4. Thinking about why is it important that we all play our part? Well, let's have a look at verse 11 through to verse 16. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. So so clearly there are roles and giftings that are given to the church. I'm not saying that we all have to be uncomfortable with the way that we serve. But there is gifting that is given to the church. And all of those are given, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, why do we all need to find our avenue of service? Why why do we all need to know what God has called us to? Because the whole body grows as each part does its work. And so this language of building or being built is clear when we're thinking of the church as well as when we read Nehemiah 3. That the the church, as each part does its work, the church is equipped for service. It is united in the faith. We grow in our knowledge of Jesus. We mature in our walk with Jesus. We persevere through trial. We defend against false teaching. And all this while we grow in our love for Christ and one another. That is what we see from Ephesians 4. That is the the outworking of each part doing its work. And and so just like the whole wall needed to be built, and some people might have had a big and public and, and, and longer section of that wall to do, some people did exactly and only what they were able to do, but each part did its work and the wall was completed. We'll see that in, in chapter 6. And just like in 
the church today. God has placed each part of us as his people in his body to serve. And the wonderful thing is we do that and we serve in that way knowing that God knows us. That individuals matter to him and so we all play our part. And and so as we finish this morning and think of Nehemiah 3 and think of these passages that we've seen in the New Testament, let's take a look at our own heart. Let's ask God to show us where he would have us serve, knowing that he knows us and we matter to him, knowing that he knows our name, knowing that he has sent his son to die in our place so that we would be drawn into this family, drawn into this body, and therefore used by him for his glory, ever growing in this deeper relationship with him. And he's called us into the body to play the part that he has equipped us to play. And so would we join him in his mission as he continues to build his kingdom through his people. And we pray that he would do that here more and more. In Gilnahirk and Braniel and the surrounding areas that God's kingdom would come and he would continue to build it more and more through us as his people and his body and his family. As he builds with living stones that spiritual house so that the world would glorify him, so that we would demonstrate his loving salvation plan, and so his kingdom would grow and extend and filter and ripple out from way beyond this place. Let's let's turn to him in prayer as we finish. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is good for us because you have given it to us. We thank you that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that we would be equipped for every good work. And so we pray, Father, that you would have done that work today and would continue to do that in our hearts as your spirit moves in and through us as we leave this place. Father, we thank you for your incredible love. We thank you that you have loved us so much and demonstrated that love by sending your son so that those of us who turn to you in repentance and faith are drawn into your family. We are then part of your body and then you equip us for your service to then see your good news made known to the world. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful mission that you've called us to. And we thank you that you have called us each by name. Lord, I pray that we would know the significance and the assurance of our personal walk with you and the love that you have for us individually. And part of that love is expressed by joining us with one another and uniting us together in your son. And as we think of how we may be able to serve and how you might be leading us to serve, whatever way that looks and whatever function that takes, Lord, would you help us? Help us to be bold as we seek to live our lives for you. Help us to be obedient to where you may be calling us. And Lord, we pray that as we seek to serve you and be faithful in how we do that, Lord, would your kingdom come and your will be done. May you receive the glory and honor and praise that is due your name. And Father, we pray all these things and we ask all these things in the saving and mighty and strong name of Jesus. Amen.